will be challenged to consider where our faith is found and what kind of man this Jesus really is. It really is a fascinating account in the life and ministry of Jesus. And I I hope that the Lord will give us the opportunity this morning to look at this text with fresh eyes. So let's begin in verse 22 of Luke chapter 8. One day he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling uh, in the, they were filling with water and were in danger. And so Jesus and the disciples are still in the region of Galilee here, as we've seen, uh, thus sometimes traveling to various parts around the region by way of the Sea of Galilee or Luke calls it a lake. The Sea of Galilee is approximately five miles wide, it's 13 miles long, and it's situated in a very unique place geographically. It rests well below sea level and is surrounded by large hill formations. And as the wind comes through those, they land upon that lake and there's sort of a funnel created and it stirs the water in a way um, that comes almost instantly without warning. It's a very common occurrence on the Sea of Galilee even uh, today. No notice is given. Instantly, these cold winds come in. They strike down on the waters and they create an unpredictable pattern of water that will easily capsize a boat in a very short amount of time. And unbeknownst to the apostles, this was the situation they were about to find themselves in when they got on the boat with Jesus. And we see in the text, Jesus determined it was necessary for him and the disciples to cross the lake. So they set out, Luke tells us, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And here yet again, we see Luke displaying the humanity of Jesus as a man. The everlasting God, the the creator of the ends of the earth who never becomes weary, the Lord, the keeper of Israel who never sleeps. And here he experiences weariness and the need for sleep as the man, Jesus Christ. It should be a great encouragement to us to know that our Lord has experienced all that is in us as men and women. Our every need, our every want, our every weakness and limitation, our every pain and discomfort, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he too has endured. Now, no doubt the pace of Jesus' ministry at this point, if you recall all that he's done already that we've looked at, was very exhausting Constantly, he's surrounded by people. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. And so he sleeps when the opportunity is available. Now notice Luke records that when the windstorm came down upon the lake, that the boat was filling with water at such a rapid pace. The words he uses is that they were in danger. Now, in Matthew's account of the same instance, he uses a word to describe the storm that literally means that there was sort of an earthquake. So you get the sense that the sea was being shaken. Just imagine this. You're, you perhaps have been on a boat before when the water gets a little bit choppy. Or maybe you're hanging over the boat when the water gets choppy. You start to feel the swaying 
back and forth. You get a little feeling on the inside. Your body's telling you that this isn't exactly normal. And then the waves get a little bigger. The boat's swaying a little bit more. Your stomach starts to get involved in this whole ordeal. You start to get a little wet and the water begins to make a loud crashing sound on the side of the boat over and over and over again. And remember, they weren't on a big yacht. They weren't on a cruise ship. It was most likely a long, narrow fishing boat and they didn't have very powerful motors in the first century. And the water was coming in and it was coming on the boat and it was filling up at an alarming rate. And then there at the front of the boat was Jesus, asleep, so exhausted by the pace of his day-to-day ministry that an intense storm, the back and forth of the boat swaying to and fro, the water soaking his body, would not wake him. And as the boat is about to spill over with water and plunge to the bottom of the sea, Jesus sleeps, calmly, peacefully, He rests. And then we read in verse 24, they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Notice what they say when they awaken Jesus. Master, we are about to die. Obviously, they assumed at this point that Jesus could do more than than they could. Clearly, they didn't know what that was. Like a child in a predicament, they may not know what their father can do, but they will instantly turn to him, knowing that whatever he can do is surely better than what they are able. But what struck these men was not simply uncertainty. It wasn't that they were a little bit concerned that things could get a little bit hairy. They literally thought they were about to die. And Jesus, whom they had already seen perform great miracles hundreds and maybe thousands of times, wasn't really doing much of anything. And so they made it known to him. You can sense in their excitement, there's almost this exhortation from the disciples to Jesus, do something. The disciples were filled with fear. I think it's easy for us to sympathize with them at this point. Certainly, it seems to us that they had legitimate reason to fear. We're going to look at Jesus' response in a moment. And it's going to tell us a very different story. But let's look first at what Jesus does in the second part of verse 24. He awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. And there was a calm. Just imagine it. Now, we have some pretty amazing storms around here sometimes, every now and then. Imagine the heaviest rainstorm you can think that you've ever been in before. Black sky, lightning crashing all around, rain coming down in bucket loads. And then Jesus wakes up from a nap, walks outside, and he says, Hey! Knock it off and everything ceases. The sun comes out. The birds are chirping. The sky is blue instantly. One second there's a storm. The next, a glassy sea. 
In the Gospel of Mark, he draws an even more vivid word picture. He writes, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still, literally be muzzled. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. The gospel writers indicate that the wind stops immediately. All three writers of the synoptic gospels speak of a sudden calm, an eerie silence as if a great hand had brushed away the wind and pressed down the waves. What a way to get the attention of the disciples. They were undoubtedly standing and taking some very deep gulps as they watched what was going on. And this was really about to become a very big learning experience for the disciples. And most importantly, they saw once again the great power of Jesus as God in the flesh and the great authority that he held that they would eventually know that he was the one who created all things simply by a spoken word. Remember, John tells us in his gospel, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. The apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so we've seen many times now in the Gospel of Luke and all throughout the Bible, Jesus is very much a man. 100% man, depending minute by minute upon the Holy Spirit, submitting himself day by day to the will of the Father. But Jesus is undoubtedly 100% God in the flesh, powerful, majestic, holy, righteous. This is the absolute supremacy of Christ in full, visible form. And so Jesus calming the storm on the sea is a physical sermon being preached to the disciples as to who this man truly is. And so Jesus calms the storm and then he turns his attention to the disciples. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, where is your faith? Now it's interesting that Jesus was in no way concerned about the storm really. He really showed no emotion in dealing with it. But when it came to the faithlessness of the disciples, he was very concerned. Now, I'm assuming that most of us probably read this and it appears as though maybe Jesus's rebuke is a little bit harsh. Because sometimes we find ourselves in the very situation as the disciples, don't we? Jesus, won't you do something? I'm about to die. It's easy for us to sympathize with their faith, their lack of faith because we've been there. 
It's easy to see their fear as something other than what it was. Because that way we don't have to deal with our own fears and our own sin and our own unbelief. The easy thing for us is to say, Jesus is being a little hard on them here. After all, they're about to die. They didn't know what to do. It was a scary situation. Of course they were afraid. But Jesus doesn't allow for that, does he? Jesus doesn't give them any room for fear because their sinful fear was rooted in some very significant issues of the heart. Ultimately, the disciples' fear was rooted in ignorance and unbelief. And I want to look at each of those individually, but let's be clear. God has given to us what the Puritans used to call natural fear. And that is a fear that springs up when we need to react instantly in a situation. The naturalists call it instinct. But our natural fear can and most often does very quickly turn to sinful fear. The disciples, based on the response of Jesus, did this very thing. Why? First, they feared because of ignorance. And ignorance of God often results in fear. And this comes when we, we do not know, or at least do not fully consider, his almighty power, his vigilant care, his unspotted faithfulness toward his people. It's a fear that stems from our misunderstanding of God's providence. If we thoroughly understand that God is providentially at work in every single affair of our daily lives and we recognize that within his providence that he possesses the power in his hand to defend and protect us if it is within his sovereign decree to do so for the greatest good and for his glory, our courage will grow stronger and our faith, our, our fear will grow weaker. The disciples were very clearly ignorant of God's providence here, and they needed to be reminded of his great care for them. You know, it's amazing as you read the Bible, we see time and time again in the gospel accounts that these disciples really proved to be very cowardly. But then after Jesus ascended into heaven, and they were fully aware of who Christ was and what he had accomplished. They became fearless, bold, courageous men of God who, as you read through the book of Acts and many of the things that happened to them, it seems as though they feared nothing. Why? Because they finally understood the providence of God. Now, often, too, we have a sinful fear in our hearts because we are ignorant of ourselves. Our failure to appreciate our relationship to God and our value in his eyes and how he protects us by his faithful promise and gracious presence. We would not tremble every time we face an apparent danger if we truly understood these things as children of the living God. And consider, if you know the story of the man Nehemiah, he valued himself in light of who he was in relationship 
to God. Remember, the, there was a conspiracy against Nehemiah, and it was very, very strong. The danger was significant. Even some people around him advising him said, flee to the temple and barricade yourself inside of it against the enemy. But Nehemiah understood something better of himself in relationship to God, and he said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. He knew he was a man called of God. He knew God's promises in his word. He had true experiences of God's goodness in his life. Should such a man flee in the face of potential danger? Other people, those without the encouragement of God's goodness because of their security in him, might flee. But not Nehemiah. Consider the words of the great Christian writer Tertullian, the second century. This was a very bloody time in the history of the church among Christians. And he wrote to encourage them to calm their fears. He said to them, are you afraid of a man, Christian, when devils are afraid of you? The world ought to fear you, seeing as you will one day judge it. If only we could without pride and vanity, understand ourselves according to our standing with the Father because of Christ and all the privileges that are ours because of our blessed adoption. We are sons and daughters of the King. If it's ever necessary to consider our inheritance as sons and daughters of God, it is our time of fear, our time of danger. When the heart is so prone to sinking. The disciples were gripped with with the fear of nature because they were so ignorant of all that was theirs in relationship to God. Which means in the end that we understand if I die, then I die. And it's the very best thing for me. Remember the Apostle Paul said... To live is Christ, but to die is gain. How do you say that? You say that when you understand you're standing with Christ. You're standing before God as his child, who has given us all things as an inheritance. And we also find within us an ignorance of the reality of our circumstances, which also produce a sinful fear. If we're honest in assessing our situations in life, we will admit that most often the circumstances are not as bad as we make them out to be in our hearts. We often assume our difficulties are dangers, and we fearfully enter into situations which God has designed to remove the dross of our lives that the gold of a righteous, obedient life in Christ might be refined all the more. We're quick to seek relief from these things which God has designed for our sanctification. So instead of trusting in him and resting in his goodness and resting in his eternal plan and his providence, circumstances have a way of overwhelming us. And we begin to control our hearts and our actions based on circumstances. Those lead us into the next step instead of God. 
Now, surely, in this circumstance, we think often that we're, we're, we're willing to compromise. We're willing to begin walking in patterns of sinfulness because we've been convinced by our deceitful hearts that I am an exception to the rule of what's going on right now. While God may use this situation in the life of every other person for their sanctification and for their good in the end, for me, there's an exception here. And so I'm not going to be obedient to God's word. I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to take control of the circumstances because I know what's best. My plan will work better than God's plan. And surely we probably won't admit that, but often we function in that way. Surely in this circumstance, it's so bad and so unbearable that obedience to what God commands of me cannot be the answer. It must be something entirely different. So I shall chart my own course. Now I have no doubt that the disciples had quite an incident on their hands. Luke even records in verse 23 that they were in danger. But if they are anything like us, and they most assuredly are, they had a reaction to this storm like no other. Their first inclination wasn't to turn to God and to call on him for help and to rest in his providence. Their first inclination was to panic and to fear because they were ignorant of the work of God. Now there's also great fear within the hearts of believers because of unbelief. The most afflicting source of fear is our unbelief. To the extent that our souls are empty of belief, they are filled with fears. If we were to dig to the root of our fears, we would find that the original seed of fear that was planted is unbelief. And the weaker our faith, the greater our fear. Unbelief generates fear, and fear strengthens unbelief. It's a deadly pattern. It's a treacherous cycle that keeps on going. And all the skill of the world cannot cure us of the disease of fear. God himself must first cure our unbelief. And Jesus took the right course of action in addressing the disciples. Notice, he doesn't rebuke their fear. Jesus doesn't deal with the branches of the tree. He deals with the root. He deals with unbelief. He digs below the surface and he looks at the real problem. Where is your faith? And what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 tells us, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith is trusting in an invisible reality. So fear comes because of unbelief. It comes when the invisible seems so uncertain to us and the visible becomes the only certain reality. And so it's no wonder that a terrible storm for the disciples becomes the source of their greatest fear. 
What they're called to hope in cannot be seen, but their circumstances can be seen, and therefore fear overwhelms them. Anyone who is not persuaded that they stand upon the solid ground of the goodness of God toward them will be afraid to stand their ground in the face of trial and deadly circumstances. It's no surprise that the disciples essentially decided that they were dead already. Notice they didn't say, we're going to perish. (laughs) They said, we are perishing. Present tense, right now, we are dying. Indeed, such an ironic statement, is it not? Yes, in unbelief, we are perishing indeed. But in the sovereign power and providence of God, we shall live forever. Unbelief leaves our greatest interests and our greatest concerns in life, not in the hands of God where they belong, but in our own hands. Then our hearts are filled with distracting fears when danger threatens us. And if this is your case, you will be surrounded with danger and you will be surrounded with trouble. But believers in Christ who are not troubled with unbelief have this advantage, that they have committed by faith all that is precious and all that is valuable to them is in the hands of God. They have committed the keeping of their souls and all their eternal concerns to him. And because those who have faith in Christ understand that these things are safe in the hands of God, they are not distracted with fear in things of lesser value. The Puritan pastor John Flavel considered the the fear within a Christian heart and the reality that many will be faced in this life with great danger. And he writes this. He says, Some object... What if I should suffer <coughs> excuse me what if I should suffer cruel and exquisite tortures like the rack and fire the most dreadful suffering that Christians have ever experienced what will I do am I able to bear it is my strength made of stone death in its mildest form is terrible in me how terrible is a violent death and he answers them who enabled Christians in the past to endure such things the love, they love their lives. They sensed pain just like you. They had the same thoughts and fears. Yet God carried them through it all. And he can do the same for you. Did he not make the devouring flames like a bed of roses for some of them? Was he not present in the fire? Did he not abate the extremity of their torment? Did he not enable the weak and tender to endure their suffering patiently and cheerfully? Some of them sang in the midst of flames. Others clapped their hands triumphantly. And up until their final moment in this world, they showed nothing but signs of joy unspeakable. Ah, friends, we judge suffering by the outside. It is terrible. But we do not know the inside of suffering. It can be exceedingly comfortable. When will we do away with our unbelieving ifs and buts, our questioning and doubting of God's power and wisdom and tender care over us? When will we learn to trust him in everything? For the just shall live by faith. And whoever lives by faith never dies by fear. And the more you trust God, the less you will torment yourself.
a great wisdom. Remember, God has promised many great things to the believer. We read from the prophet Isaiah, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, when he formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the river, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. And so we should all imagine ourselves standing right beside these disciples on the boat. And Jesus looks us in the eye and he says, where is your faith? Believer in Christ, where is your faith? Is it truly in Christ? Or are you gripped by sinful fears and a lack of trust in the providential care of the God who has purchased you by the blood of his son? Do you cry out in distress, where are you, God? Do you not care that I am perishing? Oh, dear child of God, has he not proven to you time and again with great love and great concern? He has even the number of hairs on your head numbered in his infinite knowledge. And we wonder, does he care? We must be reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Have you trusted in Christ? Some of you know you have not, and others of you have assumed that you have when you really have not. But if you examine your heart this morning, And consider what you truly place your faith in and what you turn to in every moment of distress and every trial you encounter. You will find that all is wanting but Christ. Nothing, I tell you, nothing compares to the love and compassion and care of Jesus Christ for those whom he died. You who hear me this morning who have not believed in Christ, repent of your sins, turn to him. And I ask you to consider where have you placed your hope? To where do you run when facing trials and danger? And in what do you hope as you face the inevitable reality of death? I tell you the tragedy of death by whatever means it comes, is far less tragic than the reality of an eternity lived in hell. So you see, the question that Jesus asks of his disciples is pointed at all of our hearts. Where is your faith? 
Your eternity hangs on the answer to that very question. And as Jesus spoke to the disciples, as they saw the calming of the storm, they were left with the only reasonable question that they could ask. The last part of verse 25, they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and water and they obey him? as the disciples sit in silence on a calm, glassy lake, they are stunned. And they began to ask themselves about this man. They knew their Old Testament scriptures, which taught that God controls the seas. Psalm 107 was a precise parallel of what they had just seen. Verses 24 through 30 of Psalm 107 says, They saw the deeds of the Lord. His wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea, and they mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight, and they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. And so the disciples knew that God could still the seas by his word alone. Psalm 104, 7 says, But at your rebuke the waters fled, and at the sound of your thunder they took flight. You know, by the word of Jesus. He created everything in the hundred thousand million galaxies of the universe. He created the vast cold emptiness that flickers with explosive energy. The quasars, those torches that shine with thousands of times of light in all the galaxies of the world. And he created every atom that has ever existed even those with no measurable size. And if you could somehow travel at 100 times the speed of light past countless yellow-orange stars to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down into the fiery glow that is located a few hundred light years below the plane of the Milky Way galaxy and there examine the host of young stars among the gas and the dust and witness the birth of a star you would see that that very act is sustained by the same Christ who calmed the seas and the same Christ who knows your name and has counted your hairs and causes you to breathe your next breath. All things were created by him and for him, for he is the Alpha and the Omega. The fact that Christ is the creator and sustainer and goal of everything brings us to this ultimate grand logic. He can meet every single need we will have in this life and in the world to come. And because Jesus is Lord of the universe, nothing happens. Nothing happens by accident. And though we may die if he does not first return, We are in his omnipotent, loving hand, and he will take care of his children always. 
always. Amen.